Good morning. So about 32 years ago, just as I was coming into the full-time ministry of this church, I went back to our sending church, which was Rosebank Union, to have a heart-to-heart with the senior pastor there, Terry Ray. Some of you might remember Terry. And I said to him, Terry, tell me, I'm embarking on this whole new thing. Tell me really, what's it like being a pastor of a church? And he said this. He said, Chris, you know, it would be absolutely wonderful if it wasn't for the people. I'm sure, I'm sure he was joking, but Carlos says he's not sure of that. So. <laughs> it didn't take me long as a pastor to realize that I, like everybody else, is a people. We're all in the same thing. We're part of the church. And here's the, here's the issue. Although we are born again of the Spirit, we are all in the process of transformation and we are mighty imperfect. We're all growing, sometimes struggling, sometimes battling to move from babyhood to maturity. And sometimes it's a difficult process. And it's certainly a lifelong process, for sure. We all bring into our Christian experience our past. We bring in our past hurts, our sensitivities, our prides, the things that have happened to us or not happened to us. And all these things create a potential for conflict whole of people that come together and form one body yet everybody with their own wrestles and their own backgrounds and their own baggage well that's the potential for stresses to emerge and they do but here's the thing the church is not just people the church is the body of christ the church is a people called to be the light to the nations to be the very salt in the earth the wisdom and truth that's broadcast in the name of Jesus. We're called to be a united people, a whole people. A people have learned to overlook and overcome and find a way through conflict. We must find a way through the difficulties with other folks that happen from time to time. If we don't, the church will be hurt. And if the church is hurt, you and I are hurt, for we are part of that church. And our lights will flicker (coughs) dimly in this world. Now the issue of church conflicts and problems is as old as the church is itself. You only have to go back to Acts chapter 6 to see the first outcropping of this. So in the very first days of the church, they were one big community, and they were sharing their goods and they were sharing their meals and so on and so forth. And of course the widows among them were not able to earn a living and to provide something, so they were being totally looked after. And it didn't take long for the Greek speakers to start having a go at the Aramaic speakers because they believed that their women weren't getting enough grub. <laughs> Just to put it frankly. So the apostles appointed seven people, seven men to sort out this issue. Now, have you ever wondered in Act 6 about the criteria for selecting those seven? Because it's strange. You see, if I was selecting those seven, and I had a couple of hundred widows who were all having a go at each other, some of them looking hungry and some of them looking very self-satisfied, <laughs> then maybe the criteria would be, well, let's get some really good-looking guys, full of charm. 
and maybe some admin skills, preferably thin, you know, you know they're not going to eat the grub themselves. <laughs> but that's not the criteria. Look at the criteria. Pick seven men full of wisdom and the Spirit. Because in truth, to navigate our way through the conflicts that arise between people, we need the wisdom of God and we need His Spirit. That's the criteria for that. We only get as far as Acts chapter 15, and we find two major leaders falling out, Paul and Barnabas. It says they had such a sharp disagreement. I mean, I think that's so beautiful, sharp disagreement. It was so sharp that it cut them apart. Because Barnabas went back home, I'm going home, Cyprus, and Paul went off on his second missionary journey. Although it seems that they might well have reconciled relationship-wise later, they never ministered together again that anybody knows of. Yet Paul was the great apostle to the Gentiles. And Barnabas, his very name means son of encouragement. And he was Paul's mentor. Yet that happened. By the way, I was saying to the 8 o'clock service, one of the things that uh, so impresses me about the trustworthiness of the scripture is that it's warts and all. Hey? It doesn't, nobody's come along with a pair of scissors and just snipped out the unpleasant bits. It's not a rosy picture that's presented. It's the truth. This is what happens. Paul himself writes to the Philippian church about two ladies who just couldn't get their act together. And he says, please guys, help these dear souls sort themselves out because they're dear to me and they're useful in the ministry. And then the pit, the bottom note in the scripture that I can see of, of this kind of thing happening was the church of Corinth when the believers couldn't get their act together, couldn't sort out their differences to the extent that they were suing each other in secular court. And Paul had to write to them and say, stop this nonsense. What does it say about the church when you cannot resolve your issues within the church itself? It's for this reason that the Lord Jesus Christ personally gave his disciples and us the process he laid it out in three glorious steps. This is how we are to do it. And it's found in Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 35. I'm going to read just verses 15 to 20, and I'll, I'll reference some of the, of the rest of that passage a bit later. So that's Matthew 18, 15 to 20. Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and show him his fault. Just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. This morning I'm not going to preach to you. My visual aid should tell you the story. Today it's going to be a Bible study. So I'm going to sit just like you sitting. See, so why should you sit while I stand? I don't think that's fair. <laughs> no examples. No case studies. 
not even hypothetical ones. I'm going to take you through the heart of this passage line by line, sometimes word by word, although it's not going to take that long, so relax, to explain what I believe it's really saying so that we can lay hold on it and apply it into our lives and the life of the church. So it starts in the first part of verse 15. If your brother sins against you. Now obviously I don't have to say brother in means sister in as well. Huh? Brothers, it's not a gender specific description. If anybody sins against you. But notice it's, it's a brother. This is not in relation to ourselves and the world. Although this process would work, I think, just fine as a conflict resolution methodology, but it's not designed for that. It's designed for the household of God. If your brother sins, again, within the context of this, this is trespassed or offends or wrongs you. Because in most translations, probably the ones in your hands, it's certainly the one on the screen, it goes in and says, against you. Now, some of the early manuscripts had excluded that. And it's a, it, that's unfortunate, in my opinion, because it kind of tries to reframe this as a matter of church discipline. And it isn't. It sort of gives you the impression when the words against you are left out. That if you see somebody offending God, you know, there's something in his life that he's doing which is sinful, unbiblical, you ought to rush over, make an appointment and tell him. And if he doesn't listen, you could get two witnesses who will crack him on the head. And if he still doesn't listen, you take it to the church and they excommunicate him. That's not what this is about. And it becomes quite clear that it's not about this, because a bit later on, Peter asks Jesus the question, So if my brother sins against me, how many times must I forgive him? Seven times? And Jesus said, no, 77 times. And we'll come on to that just now. So this is brother to brother offense problem issue. Verse 15 goes on with these words. Go and show him his fault just between the two of you. Go. And that means you go. And it means physically go. There might be cases where you can't, where you have to phone because of distance. You might have to send an email if you really have to because maybe something has to be set up beforehand. Maybe you've got to sort of set down some things and say, please, now let's get together so we can, we can talk about these things. But nothing will replace that one-on-one. -on -one. What's envisaged here is eyeball to eyeball, face to face, heart to heart, mind to mind, spirit to spirit. And then it says, so having gone to him, show him. Now, show him doesn't mean, um, in this context, give him a quick lecture on what a worm the fellow is, or the, the sister is. And how could they possibly think about behaving like that, or saying that, or whatever it is. It doesn't mean that within this context. It means explain, show your point of view, give the background, explain what you've understood was said or done and how that's affected you and why that's, that's hurt you. The idea here is to communicate between the two of you. And again, it says, just the two of you. Nobody else must be there. Nobody at this point. Sometimes groups are involved. Sometimes an offense is against a group. Sometimes offenses are in public and a lot of people are involved. Even then, 
This is to be one-on-one. -on -one. If it's a group, then the leader of that group goes and says, I need to talk with you. Maybe later, other folk need to get involved, but not now. Here, it's one-on-one. -on -one, just the two of you. Then verse 15 goes on. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. And again, listens doesn't mean he has processed the words you're using. No, you know, one of the most overused phrases in the English language is, I hear you, brother. <laughs> you know what it normally means? I hear the words and there's no way that I agree with you and get out of my face. <laughs> no, it means the object is the person wants, you need, he and you need to hear each other, grasp, understand. Understand what the assumptions are, what the background is. What's happened before and after, how it's affecting you and the people, and why. It's laying it out and clearing it. And look at the objective here. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Here's the whole purpose of this process. The purpose is not to get to a point where you can safely have him kicked out of the church. It's to get to the point where you are reconciled. Where harmony is restored. If he listens, grasps and acknowledges, then he can be restored or she can be restored into unity. And unity between two parties who are estranged will bring unity to the church. For we are the church. And no matter how carefully we think we can manage these things and what kind of a spin we think we can put on them and how we can put words around it or make it look better, it will affect the church. It'll affect cell groups. It'll affect meetings. It'll affect leadership. It'll affect a whole lot of people. A part of it which is overlooked so often as well is that this opportunity, this first step in the process, is a wonderful chance to be able to help the person that you're having the problem with. Not condescendingly, not talking down at them, but what you have to share might well be a, a light bulb moment for that person. They might suddenly say, you know, I didn't mean to communicate any of that. What's wrong with the way I communicate? I better check myself here. I think I'm coming across in a very, very different way to the way I think I am. Now that's helpful, right? And that helps yourself and it helps the other person to grow in Christ-likeness. I don't know what the stats are, but I would say roughly, if, the, if these steps are, are successfully done with the right heart and attitude, I would think nine out of ten problems are resolved right here. They never have to go to step two. And harmony is resolved and restored into the body of Christ. Now, I have to ask a sobering question of us all. Knowing all this, why is it that we so seldom follow this process? And I speak with a lot of hindsight, go looking back over three decades, and I look at the hindsight of my own life, and I ask, but why then do we always tend to run off in the opposite direction? Instead of going to the person who is offended, we go to almost everybody else. It used to be the telephone. You know what so-and-so said to me? Now it's the WhatsApp group. It just <laughs> takes fire. 
and Facebook, Messenger, and telephones, and cell groups, have everybody in the cell group has their ears bent about it, and the poor person who's the problem isn't in the cell group half the time. Why? Is it because truly we are more concerned about justifying ourselves, expressing our own deep indignation, and secretly hoping that if enough people know how badly we've been treated, that so-and-so is going to pay the price for that. We're, our hearts really should be in another direction, shouldn't they? They should be about restoration and unity. So when these things happen as they do, it's not if, it's when, as when they happen, we all of us need to just take stock and say, hang on a second, what am I really concerned with here? Is it my pride? Is it my sense of outrage? Is it my personal dignity? Or am I concerned for the unity of the church and the well-being of the person that I'm dealing with? If this step fails, then Jesus has laid out the second step in the three-step process, and that's found in verse 16. It says, But if he will not listen, take one or two others along. And again, will not listen isn't uh, that the fact that he blocks his ears, you know. Not, I'm not listening, la, 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 stuff. <coughs> no, if they listen well enough, but you can see that the eyes are hard and glinty, and they're basically saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Heard this all before, let's get this thing over so we can tick the box. And say we've done it right. Often if the person has really heard, there will be some form of acknowledgement, there will be some form of apology. There will be some form of saying, oh gosh, I just didn't realize that that was your background. I didn't realize you had just come from the vet where you had to put your pet down. And you were raw, raw, raw. I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that what I had said had that effect on you. There will be some acknowledgement or apology which flows. But if there isn't, then this is the role of the one or two that you take with you. Now, it, it gives the impression here that they are purely there to be witnesses in case you have to take it to the official third step, which is taking it to the church. But they serve another role here, maybe a much more important role. A little bit later on, he says, if, they, if this person has not listened to them, not you, them, they have a role of talking. They have a role of reconciling, of peacemaking. They're trying to broker peace. They're reflecting back and saying to both you and the other party, hey, do you realize what you're saying? Let's think about that more carefully. So they play the role of peacemakers long before they pay, play the role of witnesses. It's not a picture of two people sitting there with their pens out and their notebooks furling through the blank sheets, waiting to take down incriminating evidence. First of all, they try and broker peace and unity. And then, if it has to go to the third step, they will be the witnesses who say it's true. This process has been faithfully executed. These are the facts of the matter. It's the thing has been fully aired. Now, church decide on this matter. Another thing that happens at this step is that it causes you, if you are the offended person, it causes you to reflect very deeply. 
you're now going to have to take another person or two with you. Your own reasoning is now going to be exposed to light. You're going to be putting other people out. Is it worth it? Is this really that important that you need to take it to the next step? Or should you rather just forgive? You've talked together, you've aired the thing. If you can't resolve, isn't it better than just to say, I'll let it go? Because isn't that what Jesus teaches us over and over again in this passage too? Peter says, if my brother offends against me, shall I forgive him seven times? No, says Jesus, 77 times. <coughs> By the way, this is a pickup from Genesis 4.24, when Cain was avenged seven times and Lamech was avenged 77 times. And again, I think subtly, but to his particular audience, they would have understood, I think. Jesus is striking a comparison. In the days of your, my brothers, uh, vengeance was the issue. Now it's not. Forgiveness is the issue. Are you to be avenged? No. Forgive. Not seven times, but 77 times. To make sure that everybody understood what he was saying, he then told a lengthy story. Jesus told the story of the servant who owed his boss a fortune. And he fell into debt, he fell into arrears he couldn't pay. His boss calls him up, hears his sorry tale, and forgives him the lot. This wicked man runs back, grabs hold of one of the lesser servants who owes him a tiny little amount of money and beats him up and has him thrown into prison. The boss hears about that, about that gets the man back and says, You unrighteous so-and-so. You were forgiven the huge amount and you could not forgive the little. Therefore, I'm going to throw you into prison now. The message is quite clear. Jesus Christ has forgiven us the most egregious sin that a human being can commit. Rebellion in the face of the Almighty. Willful turning away from God. He's forgiven us that. He has died on the cross of Calvary so that we can have unity with the Godhead again. And every time we come to him and say, Oh, my Father, please forgive me, he does. And that's the full promise. I will forgive you if you come and confess your sins. How can we withhold forgiveness for the small offense when we have been forgiven for the great offense? The message cannot be clearer the way Jesus presents it. Us here. The two witnesses, and this is drawing from Deuteronomy 19:15, if this step two also fails, they then become the ones who establish truth in the mouths of two or three witnesses when it's taken to the church. And here's how the Lord lays out step three if it has to happen. It's from verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, to them, tell it to the church. If he stubbornly resists, he refuses right through to this point, then take it to the church. Now, taking it to the church would depend on the kind of church government you have in the church you're in. So some of the Baptist churches, or some of the, the churches based on a congregational system of government, the whole church comes together for a monthly meeting, for instance. And everything is always amongst everybody. Those are normally very small churches and so on. Well, then that would mean bring it to that kind of meeting. 
For us, we have a government which comprises a plurality of elders. A group of men appointed and directed to look after the affairs of our body. They are the men that we would then take that to. They would represent the church. And then it says, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him. That means you treat him, not the church. Treat him as you would a pagan or tax collector. The elders might well decide that this requires their further attention. And they might exercise scriptures like Titus 3.10 and actually go to the man and, or the woman and say, Look, I'm afraid you're going to have to leave because you are causing chaos and hurting a lot of people. It seldom happens, but it might. We had a, a case not that long ago. It was announced here. But that's not for you and for me to decide. We've done then everything we possibly can. Now we treat that person as if they were not a Christian brother. You see, how do you treat a Gentile? Scriptural terms. How do you treat an unsaved person in our terms? Do you treat them with contempt? No. Do you treat them with anger? No. Do you treat them with dignity? Yes. You treat anybody in the world with dignity, respect, and tolerance. Same applies here. Only difference is we would now withhold our intimate fellowship. We would withhold our trust. And we would withhold our commitment to that soul. We'd meet them in church. We'd pass them the communion bread if they still want to take it. We'd pray for them and with them. But we'll not extend our trust anymore. We'll not extend our hearts anymore. It's the terrible, unfortunate end product of a process which nine times out of ten will be resolved at step one. Almost all would then be resolved at step two. For the odd case that goes through to step three and is not resolved, that then is the end product of it. Uh, thinking about this, there, I think there are some occasions where these two of these steps, one of these steps needs to be short-circuited. For instance, if there is imminent threat of physical or mental abuse, uh, you know, you think that will never happen in a church, but maybe sometimes it does because often there's substance abuse involved or, or things of that nature. If somebody's really scared for themselves or for their family, you know, going to them one-on-one -on -one is probably not going to work it's not, and might be dangerous. In cases like that, the extreme cases, I can, I can understand a requirement to go straight to the eldership and say, we have a problem here. And it's affecting me, but it's going to affect everybody. Watch out, you know. Please deal with it. The other one is if the person who has offended you is a church leader. It's very hard to envisage how you would conduct step two. You still have to go yourself, one-on-one, -on -one, unquestionably. But if that's not resolved, who do you take when the other person is a church leader without making it formal? Because you would almost default to have to take other leaders or put that person in, in a very invidious position where they get defensive and so on. So maybe in those cases you then have to go from step one straight to step three and take it to the eldership. But those should be the very, very rare exceptions. Certainly the process that Jesus has laid out is the one we should follow in every circumstance unless, unless 
there's really hard evidence to indicate that you have to do something different. Lastly, verses 18 through 20 talk about binding and loosing in agreement. Whatever you bind, whatever you loose. Good news, bad news. Bad news to you, those of you involved in spiritual warfare. This has got absolutely zero to do with binding and casting out demons. It's got to do with the rabbinic right and privilege of determining what should be allowed, loosed, and what should be prohibited, bound. But the tense in which it's framed here in the original language is past tense. So a totally literal translation, whatever you have bound has already been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose has already been loosed in heaven. For whatever you agree has already been agreed in the heavenly realm. Practically speaking, it means this. If you and I have gone through this three-step process and done everything in our power to bring about the results of harmony and peace and unity within the body and have been unsuccessful at that, then God stands behind what we have done. We can look him in the eye and say, I could stand before my Lord with an absolute clear conscience. We have done what's right in his sight and he supports that. Conversely, if we haven't followed through this process with the right intent and the right heart, we cannot make that claim. For we will not have his approval. We will not have his support. Just lastly, please never forget the objective of this Jesus conflict resolution process. The objective is not excommunication. The objective is not permanently creating schisms. The objective is reconciliation and unity. It's actually an opportunity to express love, acceptance and forgiveness and to practice it. And that's what makes this process simple and really hard. Especially for us oaks who have overbearing pride issues. Women don't suffer from that. Ha ha. <laughs> but I'm just saying men because it makes the women laugh, you see. <laughs> but you know what? This is our reasonable response to what Jesus has done for us. This is what we call to, so that we, as part of the body of Christ, can be part of something that shines with truth and light. And not something that the world looks at and says, look at those Christians again. There they go, fighting, splitting, arguing, and going to court. Lord, grant us your wisdom in these matters. Grant us your peace, please. Grant us the ability to rise above ourselves, our backgrounds, our hurts, our prejudices and our pride. Help us to seek unity within your precious body. Help us to seek reconciliation. Help us to accept. Help us to forgive. In your name truly, Lord, for this is what you said. Amen.